right. Um, so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. And actually, we're going to be going over a lot of, uh, a lot of verses today. Um, but as it is, we're going to finish up Isaiah chapter 30. As we talked about last week in Isaiah 30, the first half of the chapter, um, we saw what the people were doing. They were basically being disobedient to God. They were saying, we're not going to trust in God. Instead, we're going to trust in Egypt, this earthen power, in order to, for, for us to find salvation against Assyria. Um, and as we remember, Assyria at the time, as we'll see in our maps, is the major power at the time. And so it kind of makes sense why. You know, you, you can kind of sympathize with the people. Um, they see this great threat and they want to, that fear to be gone. And so they're trying to look around. Meanwhile, God is saying, I'm right here. I'm right here the whole time. You don't have to worry about this threat. Trust in me. Trust in my power. Um, and so we're going to see how this all plays out in the second half of the chapter. But first, let's get to our maps. That way we know historically what's going on. So we know his, Assyria right here. They're the major power. They've basically conquered everybody. Um, go to the next uh, map, if you would, please, Dan. Thank you. And we see how they have conquered all around, north, south, east, and west. And they're trying to come down here um, to where Judah is, where Israel and Egypt are. Next map goes ahead and shows it. Um, and as you remember, after Solomon's death, there was a division between the two kingdoms. So you had Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. At this point, Assyria has already conquered Israel. Israel is no more. And so Judah and Jerusalem right here, they're just looking at Assyria who has conquered Israel, and they know they're next in a way. Um, and so we're going to actually be getting into that quite significantly in the next few chapters especially. We're going to get into some historical context of the siege against Jerusalem by Assyria, things like that. Um, so if you are interested in being more engaged, there you know. Um, all right, so now we'll get into our verses for today. And we're going to start with verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. So verse 18 is a transitional verse, which has been a common sight for Isaiah. That is, it goes well within what comes before as well what comes after. In it, we find God waiting to be gracious to the people. This grace is available to them should they simply turn from their continued route of destruction. Um, that he exalts himself to show mercy likely indicates that though they had already been deserving of judgment, God has refrained. He's shown them mercy instead of simply destroying them for their wickedness. And in that way, God shows how great he really is. And this makes sense, again, in light of the second half of the verse. God is a just God. The people are worthy of judgment because of their faithlessness and lack of repentance. Yet we find those who wait on God are the ones who are blessed. Those who do turn toward God are blessed. If they should turn toward God, they would find all of their needs to be met. And now we're going to come to verses 19 through 22. Um, and as a side note, you kind of notice that on the screen it's going to be a little different because it goes from poetry to prose. And we'll see why in a second. For people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way to walk, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. 
Then you will defile your carved idols, overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. All right, so the thought comes further. Um, While so many other cities will be destroyed, Zion, Jerusalem, will remain. The people will dwell in Zion, and there will be no more weeping. That there is no more weeping implies the judgment of God has passed. This is even more likely in light of the grace of God being bestowed upon the people at the sound of your cry. In the judgment, they are able to turn in repentance and faith toward him, and in doing so, he will take away their tears and that which is causing their tears. This is established further in the text as God gave them bread of adversity and water of affliction. They will experience the hardships which are the result of the choices that they have made. Yet, there is hope. For in the judgment, it opens their eyes and they are able to then turn toward God. In this way, their hardship and chastisement is a blessing since it opens their relationship to God, able to be taught, not just scolded. Scholars note the closeness of the relationship between the teacher and the students. They hear a word behind you. It represents an intimacy between the teacher and the student. That is God and his people. In this way, they will find understanding, the right way to live. They will be able to distinguish between what is good and bad and right and wrong. It will not be by their own understanding, but God who guides them in life. The response of the people will be faithfulness. God has warned them repeatedly through his law and the prophets, which is the right way to go. They had oftentimes been misled by their own hearts and minds to follow instead the ways of pagans with their idolatry and deities. Now they are no longer deceived. Instead, they trust in God and it leads them into defiling, destroying the idols and the false beliefs which they held on to previously. Those things which had bound them and led them into further darkness will be abandoned and some will say destroyed for the truth. Now we come to verses 23 through 26. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground, which you will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. There is sometimes conflict in our understanding between spiritual and physical. In the Old Testament, however, the balance of both spiritual and physical is often understood and held in high esteem. So it is here we find in the previous verses the spiritual, metaphysical, philosophical understanding of the people. That is, a foundation on God. Now we find God providing for their needs physically. He is the one who provides the rain, which causes the seeds to grow, which turns into bread. It will not be a minor blessing. Instead, we're seeing a full abundance of blessing. That which the idols were unable to provide, God is capable of doing. This leads to the livestock. The animals will be able to graze upon open fields. There will be so much plenty that the animals will also eat the higher quality diet. Oswald, who's a scholar, notes, 
more. Not only does this diet testify to abundance, but it also testifies to owners whose hearts have been enough softened by God's care of them as to be concerned for their animals. A reflection, perhaps, of God's revelation to Jonah that he will not destroy Nineveh for the sake of both the people and also the livestock. God cares about all that he has created. The concept of barrenness versus watered area has been an interesting theme thus far in Isaiah. Where there is water, there is life. That the water will be flowing shows God's blessing on the people. We notice, however, it comes only after the day of slaughter when the towers fall. Only after the people have let go of the worldly understanding and put their faith in God and trusted him, despite what the world says, will such blessings occur. Likewise, there is a reflection on the previous paragraph at this moment. Previously, the bread and the water were affliction and devastation. Now, however, the bread and the water provide life. Darkness, both spiritual and physical, calls us to wander aimlessly, so we are unable to see where we are going. The traps and the pitfalls occur when darkness surrounds us. As it is, God will illuminate his people's surroundings so they will be able to see and understand. Not only this, but he will also heal that which was once broken um, and had broken them in the dark. A famous C.S. Lewis quote comes to mind. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Now we come to verses 27 and onward. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Some will wonder about the name of the Lord coming from afar, but this is our lack of understanding sometimes. The name of the Lord was a blessing to his people and meant they knew him and were known by him. Thus, for his name to come implies that God himself is going to arrive. The burning anger and the thick rising smoke go well together to establish what is occurring, with fire coming from smoke naturally. Thus, the same way the Lord comes in anger and the result will be in much the same way. That his lips are full of fury and and tongue like a devouring fire shows the significance of God's word. His word, strong, And upon which all things rest. That his breath is like an overflowing stream could represent the suddenness of devastation. It is as sudden and quick a flood which reaches up to an individual's neck. That it does implies the person is unable to wade through the water. Instead, it overwhelms. The destruction which comes against the nations will be thorough. It will not be a minor occurrence. But when it does occur, it will be sudden, it will be fierce, and it will be irresistible. Whereas normally a bridle is placed upon a beast of burden, here we find it is placed upon people under judgment. Perhaps as a reflection of the fact that they had previously been acting like animals, and in response, as animals, they will be treated. Now we come to the final verses of the chapter. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in a furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians 
will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling and brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Yet, such judgment will not affect those who belong to God. Instead of terror, the people will experience a holy feast, gladness, and the sound of singing and rejoicing. As one who sets out to go to the mountain of the Lord likely implies one who is traveling to Jerusalem for worship, such an individual does not go out of fear, but out of love of faithfulness to God. Some find it strange how it suddenly turns from peace to devastation in verse 30, but we must remember he is the God of both. Thus the voice of the God comes against an enemy of the people. The natural element of the voice occurring goes directly against the idolatry of the previous sections, as the pagans believed the deities were each in their own natural sphere of influence. The God of Israel controls all of it, and his destruction is mighty. Who is the enemy which God's judgment comes against? The answer is the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who defeated again the northern kingdom in 722 AD. Unfortunately, the or, well, yeah, fortunately, the southern kingdom escaped, but would not escape unscathed, as Assyria will devour much of the country. Indeed, coming right up to the gates of Jerusalem, as we'll find in a few chapters. But as we see here, despite God utilizing Assyria to chastise his people, he will, in the end, rise against the Assyrians. To the people on the, on the inside of Jerusalem, when the Lord fights, the sound is not one of fear, but of peace. They recognize their hope is in God, and as he brings his judgment against the Assyrians, the people of God rejoice over his redemption. Despite Assyria believing that they were the ultimate power of the world, in the end, they have been nothing more than a tool used by God for his purposes. Despite being utilized by God, their own evil will not go unpunished. He has already set up their destruction and all that it takes for him to bring their destruction is his breath. Such is the power of God where his word alone is powerful enough to end mighty empires. Empires the rest of the world believes are invincible, are easily defeated and discarded against the power of God. All right. So the main point of these verses are to establish the purpose of really chastisement. As seen in the text, the purpose of God bringing this devastation upon his people is not to annihilate them, but to bring them back to himself and to correct their understanding. They have chosen to reject him and therefore face the reality of that choice. God, however, will not allow that to be the end. Instead, he will redeem his people even from his own judgment and the device which he brings judgment, the Assyrians, will instead be undone by his word. So when it comes to the Old Testament prophets, we are continually reminded of many things. One of those things is the nature of their preaching. They were not worried nor scared of proclaiming the truth regardless of what that truth was. If that was a matter of eternal love of God for his people or the coming devastation for faithlessness, in the end the prophets were more concerned about truth than about troubling their audience. 
When it comes to today's text, we see elements of both. Jerusalem is warned about the coming chastisement, which will come against them. God is going to bring Assyria in order to chastise his people for their faithlessness. They will experience incredible hardships and pain. Indeed, many will die at the hands of God's instrument. Yet the question we want to ask is, what is the purpose of this chastisement? Why does God allow such a monster of a nation, such ability, as to come in and bring such destruction? Is it only for the purpose of destruction? Is it only to cause pain? Well, the answer according to today's text is a resounding no for his people. The purpose is not to simply eradicate his people. No, the purpose of the chastisement, the pain, the hardship is so that his people will turn to their maker. That instead of trusting in their own abilities and the sources, his people would turn toward him instead. The next question is, is this a worthy reason? I would argue yes. The greatest blessing God has bestowed upon his people is knowledge of himself. By being able to know God, we are able to know reality itself. By knowing God personally, we have a foundation for all possible goodness in this life. Thus, all of the blessings that can be bestowed upon us, the greatest is the knowledge of God. If chastisement brings us greater knowledge of our creator, then that chastisement is worth experiencing. If this still isn't enough, however, for one to recognize the goodness that comes from God's chastisement, consider what is said in Hebrews. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Admittedly, this flies in the face of much of what we hear today when it comes to God. Oftentimes we are told God wants our health and our wealth and to give us all of our personal desires. Yet of all things, God wants us to be glorified on our behalf. God wants us to glorify him. He wants to love us as his very children. In loving us as his children, he chastises us knowing it will lead to a better relationship with him, a better life, and a better world overall. This chastisement is not meant to destroy us, but to give us greater peace, which is not found in us, but in him. Does that make it any less hard? No, not really. We all have thorns in our side. We all have moments of struggle, moments when God allows Assyria, so to speak, to batter our door. Yet the purpose is that we should not depend on ourselves, but to continue to rely on the one who can save us from the destruction we bring by our own hands. 
So if ever you are in the midst of struggling, if ever you are in the moments when life is hard, remember the times of chastisement are a good thing, not a bad thing. They are not meant to destroy you, but to further edify you so that you can better know and honor God. Personally, I can think of a moment, or many moments, (laughs) when this is the case with Carissa and I. She and her? No, she left. Good. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, In reality, I can point to whole years of marriage, really. (laughs) When it comes to finances, for example, we have struggled, not because as a married couple we have necessarily been failures, but because of the unwise choices we made prior to being married when it comes to, let's say, student debt. To be honest, it has been a hard road thus far because of those choices. The chastisement for foolishness can be hard at times. Yet in experiencing this, we have gained greater wisdom in how to do well with our finances that God has given us, budgeting, and knowing despite what culture says, profit is not everything. But God's faithfulness, that is everything. It has taught us to learn and rely more on God. And that's a lesson worth having. In all honesty, it doesn't even need to be that extended as 10 years, let's say. Sometimes it is depression, seasons, a particular season which seems to go on and on. Sometimes it is the Spirit urging us in a direction of repentance and the chastisement of sins unrepentant for can be hard. I suspect each of us has had these things and will have these things. In such cases, remember to remain in hope. You will not be in this state forever. And in the end, the season is for a purpose to draw you closer to God Almighty. This is indeed certain truths about chastisement. Yet there is another aspect found in this passage in Isaiah, and that is judgment. This is something which we often ignore because it is far easier for us to preach and teach on the love of God. Yet if God is loving, then he also must not be loving. There are things by definition he must hate. As it is, that which he hates is sinfulness, for it can only ever cause destruction in its own right. The judgment of God comes against the wicked for this reason. He is a righteous God, a moral God, a good God. Justice flows from his throne to us. As such, the judgment of God comes against the sinful humanity, those who are immoral, who scoff wisdom, who reject he who is goodness itself. The only one who can show us what is good because he is good. As such, when we live in sinfulness... We deserve punishment for our choices and our actions. So it is with the faithless people who continue to rely on idols. So it is with the Assyrians. There are always repercussions for our choices, and the repercussions for godliness is always judgment. It doesn't matter if an individual or nation. In the end, the result will always be the same in that godlessness brings forth judgment from God. To say it another way, To not describe the eternal darkness which humanity binds itself to and to ignore the ramifications for that binding would be to cease being prophetic to our culture and to each other. The prophets spoke the truth regardless of how hard it was to hear. So we must also speak the truth that without God and the continued desire to live apart from him in this life will only lead to certain destruction. It must also be said that this does not mean there can be no good which comes out of godless people. In the end, God will not be undone by evil tendencies. He was not undone by Assyria. 
He will not be undone by us or this culture. Yet there is a price to pay for wickedness. There is a price to pay for claiming to be God and to be our own makers when we are finite and created beings. There is a price to pay for believing we can create our own reality and that we do not need God. The punishment fits the crime, since the crime leads to so much further darkness. As such destruction does come against Assyria, and it certainly comes against any of those who go against God. While there are those out there who believe that hell will be a party, so to speak. Has anyone ever heard of that, by the way? I don't get it. Anyway. Or that you're going to mourn when I go to hell. You ever hear that one? I wish you all to consider, though, something that we read today and have a response to those people. The people in God's care do not weep over the destruction, but rejoice. Why? How? The answer is that in seeing God the teacher, they are able to see his judgments are truly good and worthy. We will not mourn the destruction to come, but instead we will rejoice in God's justice being enacted once and for all, where all evil is put away forever. As such, know the difference between chastisement and judgment. Chastisement, harsh, painful at times, but its purpose is to bring us to God. Judgment, harsh, painful, is for evildoers content in their sinfulness. And naturally, I think that this brings us to the gospel. Um, And when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it all starts with a beginning. That is God. God is the first cause of all that we see, all that we experience, all of reality. The universe itself was caused by God. It did not just simply pop into existence on its own. Nothing can come from nothing. And so as it is, God caused this whole universe that we experience every day. Whether it be the stars in the nighttime sky, whether it be Mike out in the forest looking at the magnificent trees that he likes to cut down. (laughs) Or plant, or plant. (laughs) Still though. Whether it's all of these things, we see this magnificent creation. And as we read today, you notice all the things of the heavens and all of the things in the depths. What are they all doing at the end? Rejoicing and worshiping God. And God created all of this, and so he deserves worship. But most of all, he created you and I to bear his image. And that's a wonderful thing. To be made in the image of God, you have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. Every person has that intrinsically, no matter how small, how young, how old, how large. In the end, all people, humans, are made in God's image. And that's a wonderful thing. The problem, however, comes like in today's text. Idols. Making up reality based upon what we want to make it. Living as though we are the makers. Believing that we can choose what is good and what is right and what is wrong. All on our own. The problem with that is that it leads to sin. The problem with sin is that it is always unrighteous. It is always devastating. It always breaks people and relationships. Anytime you go over the Ten Commandments, for example. And you just read them over real quick and you think, if I were to act that way, 
it would ruin every relationship I have. Why is that? Why is it that God gives us these moral truths? Because he knows that if we don't have them, then we will break everything we have. And we do every day. And so when it comes to sin, we are worthy of judgment. We are like the Assyrians battering down the door. We are like the Assyrians who say to God's people, no, we're going to destroy you. And this whole world seeks to destroy it. God's judgment deserves to come. We deserve judgment for our sins. We deserve it because we are on the outside. But by God's grace, we don't have to remain there. And that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh, we have a historical moment that is our salvation, this person, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. And through his death, we are redeemed. And those gates that we were once trying to batter down, which we never will, are all of a sudden open to us to enter. And we don't come in to destroy, we come in to live. And so it is with those who turn their faith into Christ, knowing that it is in him that we find all of reality, all morality, all good things found in this person of Jesus. And then from that point, we can live for the glory of God in righteousness and justice and what we need to do in this world to glorify him, to our culture, to our society, to the nation, to the world, by proclaiming the same truth the prophets proclaimed. Will it be easy? No. We see what happens to Isaiah. We see what happens to Jeremiah. We see how Jesus weeps because of how many prophets Jerusalem killed. But we also know that the truth is what redeems. The truth is what makes clean. And we have that truth. We need to proclaim it. And where does it lead? Well, it leads to a better world when we live for God. A world in which there is love, there is mercy, there is true justice against evil because we can define evil and we can define what's good. It's all found in the person of God. So as we go forward and as we leave this place and as we consider what Isaiah has proclaimed, let us not be hesitant to proclaim the truth because this world is in need of the truth. It's in need of the gospel of Jesus and it needs a bold people who will be faithful and not faithless. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who has redeemed us. We thank you so much that you are a God who has this amazing grace bestowed upon us. We thank you that you have sent your prophets before us so that we may know the truth. Lord, the prophets did not have easy lives. Neither did your apostles. Neither did your son. For speaking the truth, they were hated. They were despised by the world. Lord, we know what happens to those who follow after you. And so, Lord, we ask for your strength to overcome this world because you have already overcome it. We ask that we would learn from Isaiah to not trust in ourselves, but to trust in you. So that way we can actually have a true impact on the world for good because you are good. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished through your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn for today.